0: Coming up on Tech Nation, Jenny O'Dell asks us to occasionally step back from technology and reevaluate our perspective of ourselves. Recognizing how hard that is, she's written, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Then Tech Nation Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the World Health Organization's Global Goals for Technology Global Health now officially needs information and in consumer technology. And Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis explains those phone calls pretending to be from the IRS. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Pencil
0: and paper. Oh no, pen and paper. That's how I think we should all, wait for it, vote. Look. We know about the Russians using social media to intervene in the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. And more recently, with the midterm elections coming, we hear that Russians, or some other entity if you don't want to think it's the Russians, have access to and can change voting totals in a number of counties throughout the United States. What's that old line? Fool me once, that's your fault. Fool me twice, that's mine. From my perspective, the use of social media to affect opinion is serious enough, but I'm genuinely concerned when it comes to any intervention with the voting totals themselves. In recent years, once a vote count entered a computer, whether a simple spreadsheet to an AI platform database in the cloud, well, that data was vulnerable, and still is, which sends me back to pen and paper. How do you think America counted its votes for the first century and a half? We know how to do this, and it can be made even more trustworthy. Let's start with that moment of trust. I mark, with a pen, a single vote on a ballot. Today I go over to a machine that looks like an oversized fax machine and feed the paper sheets in one by one. Then I hand my actual paper sheets to the polling person. And those pieces of paper are the last place I know for sure that my vote was correctly counted. But those super fax machines, they scan my votes and start toting them up with all the others. Or I guess they do. I have to trust that these digital votes wind their electronic way up to the San Francisco Department of Elections and then on to the state or the nation or wherever they go, which brings me back to pen and paper. No digital technology solution is as trustworthy as hand counting, with one person watching another, another checking, and so on. That many people can't all be bought, and more are trustworthy than not. Now I realize that this is labor intensive, but there are plenty of Americans happy to pitch in. And we only need to do this for important elections, like the president and senators and representatives. So here's the plan. Or at least one plan. Step one, cast your vote with pen on paper and it could be in triplicate. We used to do that all the time. The first page could be white, the second blue, and the third say goldenrod. That's sort of a yellow-orange, which used to be popular when we did those things. Now step two. Separate the sheets and feed one into a white machine, one into a blue machine, and one into goldenrod. Not for counting votes, but to make sure the votes on each match. If not correct it and try again step three send the white blue and goldenrod packets of paper to white blue and goldenrod vote counters each counting manually the totals don't match go back and do it again or figure out the problem multiple entries multiple checkers why do you think people literally had to steal ballot boxes in the old days Reversing the words of Michelle Obama, when they go high, we go low. We take the technology out of their hands so they can't steal our elections. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on TechNation, I speak with Jenny O'Dell, an artist and writer. She also lectures at Stanford University. We'll talk about her book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Then TechNation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the World Health Organization's goals for technology. And Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis talks about those telephone calls pretending to be from the IRS. And now, Jenny O'Dell, the author of How to Do Nothing. Jenny, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks for having me. If there's one thing that technology helps us to do is to get a whole lot more done in a short amount of time, but it doesn't seem to be oriented to getting us to do nothing.
2: On my way here, I noticed a billboard for something that um, it's like a bot that schedules meetings while you're away. And the ad is like about how this bot scheduled someone's meeting while they're asleep. And it's a good thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, I've been pitched a number of of guests who want to talk about succeeding in the attention economy, making money in the attention economy, and we've done our share of interviews—not as many, certainly, as has been pitched. So let's remind people what the attention economy is.
2: Yeah. So I think the attention economy, on a literal level, is just the buying and selling of attention. So that would be the design of apps or platforms um, to keep you on them as long as possible. Um, and engaging with them as much as possible. So that's kind of the the concrete answer. But I think also there's another level of the attention economy, which is kind of like the mindset um, that comes out of that. So this idea that you um, cease to exist if you're not expressing yourself online or things like the idea of a personal brand, um, these are kind of more nebulous phenomena, but I think they come out of those designs. So the idea
0: for the people creating whatever, websites, technologies, whatever it is, mobile apps, is to get you to engage so they have the opportunity to make money, which may simply be, you know, looking at ads or at a higher price if you actually click on one Mm -hmm. by mistake or otherwise. They can suck you in. And the best ones, I guess, would offer you a place to have a whole new life.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's why I mentioned the kind of two levels, because I think, Um, On a granular level, it's just sort of, you know, the little pop-ups and the little, you know, red circle that you want to tap on. But then it feeds into this larger feeling that that your life does exist there, um, and it kind of shifts your center of gravity in terms of, like, what you think about and where those things are to this one kind of place where everything seems to be happening. Now, you describe the invasive logic of
0: commercial social media and its financial incentive to keep us in a profitable state Of anxiety. I'm anxious just thinking about this.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think you can see some examples, just, you know, maybe not everyone, but um, a lot of people in their everyday life, there are these moments where, for example, you are having an experience and you're already thinking about how you're going to package it on social media. Um, You're looking at something, you're already thinking about the photo that you're going to take and put it on Instagram. And I mean, I feel like people have been talking about this for a long time. I'm really just kind of adding my voice to that chorus. But that's kind of, when I say invasive, I think um, I mean that it's invading other parts of our lives that we don't even think of as being online. Even the off time is sort of invaded by the, the on time. Well, there's, it's
0: the default state when we're not engaged. I mean, whenever you're speaking, uh, if nobody looks down at their phone, you're like, boy, that was really good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look at that. Nobody looked down at their phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's telling to me if you think about the times when you don't have a problem looking at your phone, those tend to be times when you're really engaged with something else. So for me, that tends to be an in-person conversation with a good friend, um, particularly someone you haven't seen in a long time. If you hear a live performance and you know you're never going to hear it again, like these are moments when you, you know that they demand your attention in a certain way. And, and coincidentally, those are times when you don't have problems being distracted by your phone.
0: Now, you open the book with the sentence, nothing is harder to do than nothing.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to, to recognize that it is difficult. I also should add that, you know, lest anyone read this book and think that I, you know, never look at my phone anymore or something like that. I mean, it's an ongoing struggle. Um, and so I think, you know, I try to acknowledge in the book that it's um It's something, it's a day-to-day kind of effort to try to cultivate forms of attention and think of that as a lifelong project because I think there are very real reasons that it feels difficult. Then there are these voluntary things that say, well, every time a text message comes
0: in, my phone's going to ding. It's like, no, no. Turn it on if you're waiting for one really important or a phone call that's really important. But no dinging. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
2: No dings. No making things more difficult for yourself than they already are. But let's be clear. This is not an anti-technology book. No, it's definitely not an anti-technology book. As an artist and someone who's taught art for a long time, um, I have been kind of collecting examples for a long time, some of which I talk about in the book, of pieces of art that use... Um, some kind of technological mediation or they have some digital aspect Um, one of the examples that I give is David Hockney's video piece where he attaches a bunch of cameras to the side of a car and drives down a road almost like artist's version of Street View Um, and then when you what's Street View? Oh Google Street View? Oh, Google Street View yeah Uh yeah and, you know, when you go to the de Young Museum and you see this piece, yes, it's, you know, it's a video installation, right? But then when you go outside, and this is something that I talked to the docents um, there about, the visitors would kind of report going outside and that everything looked different. Uh, they would go to the botanical garden. It kind of looks different to them. And so I have all these examples of art as a kind of perceptual prosthesis. And I think technology is really key in that because it can open up, um, you know, facets of the world to you that you were not able to see otherwise unaided. I mean, my favorite example of technology is a pair of binoculars. <laughs> you know, it's like that is a form of um, augmented vision that is not, a you know, quote, unquote, Augmented natural. reality. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. We've been using that term a lot lately. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it is. It's its own form of, of augmented reality. Um I recently took a birding class and I had never looked through a scope before. And that's like, you know, if you're a hardcore birder, you get a scope and a tripod. And I just have my puny binoculars. And I looked through the scope at this loon, which I had never seen a loon before. And it was amazing. I mean, you could see its eye, you could see every single feather, um, you know, and that's like, that's what I'm excited about technology doing for me is allowing me to see things that I can't see otherwise. Well, to follow on, I think, you know, from anxiety, which we talked about earlier, I think one
0: of the the terms that kept coming back to me was overstimulated with all of this technology and the fact that so many of the things that we can do, we actually can't do until we can slow down and remove it from our lives.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one one of the things that I talk about with attention is the fact that you, um, in order to pay attention to one thing, have to ignore other things. (laughs) Um, And that's getting harder and harder to do. Um, I also think that, um, you know, something that concerns me is getting used to that state of constant distraction and becoming sort of, you know, not satisfied, but accustomed to paying a small or shallow kind of attention to everything all the time and almost like forgetting what it's like to pay very close and deep attention to one thing. Um, because to me, those are the most rewarding parts of my life are when I am kind of almost in an ego dissolving way, like super aware of something that I am observing or some environment that I happen to be in. So that's something I think that gets sacrificed to the the constant overstimulation.
0: There are many things in life that you have to pay more attention to or or be in a different state to process uh I know I was teaching classes you know four hours at a shot once uh, one evening a week to people who were working, and so a lot packed into there, and they had things to do between classes they were trying to make these classes go faster and they said don't worry on Saturdays we'll do four hours in the morning a one-hour lunch break and four hours in the afternoon and I'm <laughs> like well how, how are they gonna do all that stuff in the middle you know yeah. I was like so to think and to absorb and to incorporate and then to be ready for the next step I mean uh, even as an yeah. artist you it takes time and the ability to do that that's more than just not being distracted that's that's taking time to do things that are far more deep.
2: Yeah, I think it's yeah very familiar to anyone who makes anything that there is a certain incubation period for any kind of thought or idea. Um, it's one of the reasons that I constantly find myself having to remind my students who are in an art class, but a lot of them have never um, taken an art class before. Um, and, and they don't usually take me seriously when I say this, but I tell them to give themselves twice as much time as they think they need, but to understand that um half if not more of that time is not going to feel like making anything um, that it could just look like walking around or running your idea by a friend, which I like highly recommend to them um, to not kind of um look at the assignment as a set of requirements that can be sort of knocked off on a list uh you know, the night before, obviously, but um I think it's hard it's hard for. A certain type of bottom line mentality to recognize the value of things like reflect, you know, time for reflection, sleep dreaming, um, the conversations and encounters that you have that don't seem obviously related. I mean, I, I now know this very much from experience writing the book. I mean, so many things in the book are things that weren't there in my book proposal. I mean, I encountered them. Honestly, I was surprised by them as I was writing and, um, and I think it's better for that. So that happened because I, I, you know, maintained that space and was very protective of it.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Jenny Odell. She's an artist and writer who is also a lecturer at Stanford University, and she's been an artist in residence at such diverse places as the San Francisco Planning Department, the Internet Archive, Google, Facebook, and the San Francisco Dump. Her book is How to Do Nothing Resisting the Attention Economy. Well, Jenny, tell us about the San Francisco Dump. Uh, I'm so nostalgic for the dump. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like nicest my favorite thing anybody place. said about the dump in years.
2: Tell us about the San yeah.
0: Francisco dump. Most people here even in San Francisco have not been to the dump.
2: Um well I highly recommend they go to the dump uh because they have tours but uh so it's called Recology SF um and it has had a an artist residency for I think more than 25 years at this point. Um and so um The residency involves a couple months at the dump uh, with a studio and the dump is not a landfill so it's not where the trash is ending up it's the trash is kind of passing through it's where um, you know trash from trash bags is going but also uh, paying customers who are decluttering or things that are going out of business so there's a basically a giant pile in the public disposal area and that is what artists have access to with a shopping cart, which I also very much miss. <laughs> and, um,
0: and so yeah, you could take your students there,
2: then go shopping for the, at the town. Uh, it, well, probably not. There's a lot of liability around that. Cause it's, you know, it's a intense building. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, big trucks and trash moving around. And, um, so artists definitely have to be trained to be in there. Um, but I, uh, you know, speaking of encounters, that couple of months was just every time I would go in there, the the pile, as we call it, would be new, you know, there's new things in the pile and you just don't know what you're going to see. And there's very strange juxtapositions, you know, like I found a, a bank ledger from 1904 next to like, uh, an old Nintendo, um, console. So, um as an artist who's really interested in shifting the context of familiar objects is kind of like my dream come true. Well, some of your students are engineering students. Yeah. What's your perspective there, given your your experience with them? Um, It's been really great having engineering students, also computer science, product design, um, generally, students from outside of the humanities, um, and I was an English major uh, in undergrad, so um, I had a very congratulations different... on having a job. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? I'm doing fine. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really loved having them as students because I think there's a lot that I would take for granted if I taught only art students. Um, you know, we would have all decided that art is valuable, right? And I wouldn't have to make that argument. Um, and so. Just arguing for the, you know, I hate to use the word utility, but if I have to use that terminology with them, I will. Um, The utility of something like art, um, the kind of less obvious, um, less predictable ways of doing things. um, It's been great to have them kind of as a sounding board for that. Um, And... They also just make things that really surprise me. Um, I think when you open up that kind of mindset to this very different way of making things, um, great things can result. Well, the funny
0: thing is with engineering students is part of what they do that sort of label, not labels you but draws you to engineering is that you build things, you create things. Normally, they're useful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's sort of like, ooh, this would be useful. This would really help. So they know how to do that. But to build something that didn't really have an obvious everyday use, that's a challenge.
2: Yeah, it is. It really requires broadening one's definition of usefulness. So um, you know, if you if you look at something like product design, um, and I think, you know, they have, it sounds like they have some pretty interesting classes in product design, so I'm not saying they have super narrow thinking about that or anything like that, but but that's a discipline where you're making a, a thing that's useful. Um, and so in my design class, I have uh, an assignment for them where they design a walking tour um, that does have a phone component, like that's where the sort of directions and, and media and stuff are that would direct the the tour taker around, but... Um, I'm really trying to shift the idea of newness from like new object to new experience, that you can give someone a new experience by pointing them in different directions or directing their attention, that that's its own form of, of design. And I think that's highly useful, given that, you know, if you do that successfully, you have now given someone access to more of their own experience, possibly for their entire life.
0: You ask us to look again, to see again what we mean by the word productive, because we're always supposed to be so productive. My mother used to say that whenever she heard her mother about to come in the room, she'd jump up and look really busy <laughs> and be productive. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I'm sure she yeah. was not alone in having yeah. this experience. But, uh, but in considering this, the idea of, of what we think of today as being productive versus what, how we might think about it.
2: Yeah, my version of productivity is a lot sort of broader. It's just very different than the traditional version of productivity, which is um, having something to show for your time, um, producing something, putting something new in the world that wasn't there before. Um, Just, you know, the typical idea of production. Um, And one, you know, at the very beginning of the book, I talk about this story of the useless tree, which is a Taoist story about a carpenter who sees a very large, gnarled oak tree and is kind of disdainful about it, like, oh, it only got to be that big because it's useless as timber, because of its shape. And then the tree comes to him in a dream and basically makes fun of him and says, who are you to call me useless? Useless? You don't even know what usefulness is. You're mortal. you know." Um, and then the, the funny detail of the story is that the tree is so big that it shades several thousands of teams of oxen. So it's clearly very useful in terms of care um, and shelter, um, but it's not useful in the kind of very narrow um, scope of being seen as timber. Um, So I think that that really sums up my attitude towards um, productivity. Something that I like to ask is productive of what and for whom? And I think um, one of the problems with the cult of productivity is that you get caught up in it. And when you get caught up in it, you don't have time or space to step away and ask yourself that question.
0: Amazingly, you're able to translate that story to today to a singular tree in the East Bay, which yeah. wasn't particularly useful yeah. in terms of the technology that had been developed. Let's yeah. talk about that.
2: Yeah, we have our own useless tree in Oakland. Um, so it is called Old Survivor. I think it has different names for, for different people, but um, it's the last old growth redwood tree in the Oakland Hills. Uh, it's a holdover from when we used to have an old growth redwood forest. And um, it was sort of assumed for a long time that we had lost all of those. And so all of the redwoods that you see, you know, say in Redwood Regional Park are second growth. Um, But at some point someone discovered um, Old Survivor, which very similarly to the tree in the story had survived because it's an odd shape. Uh, It was also not very big compared to old growth redwoods. Obviously now, you know, it's pretty big. (laughs) Um, And it's on kind of a, uh, it's in a location that's hard to get to you'd have to kind of scramble to get there. So um, I, you know, I read about that and I was like, oh, wow, this is the real, the real useless tree. tree. (laughs) tree. And it really was saved by its uselessness. It's kind of an amazing uh, metaphor
0: for each of us. You know, it's like we are, we have all this technology and we're sort of drawn to it or pulled into it. And yet we're not of it. We, we can, we need to be who we are.
2: Yeah, I think we exceed these platforms in ways that are really beautiful and important. Um, and, and the reason I say, you know, it's hard to do nothing. It's not just that it's hard to do nothing. Um, if you live in a situation where everything is geared to make you want to produce certain types of things uh, all the time... It requires a kind of uncomfortable resistance just to not do that. I think I compare it to wearing the wrong outfit to a party with a dress code. (laughs) Um, And I mean, I have to say I've even been experiencing that with this book where um, I'm having to walk the walk of what I'm talking about in the book because there's so um, there's so much kind of pressure for it to be a book about just you know not using your phone that that's what the whole book would be about and it would be this kind of very cut and dried uh tips for not looking at your phone and you know there's you know i i sense frustration around the fact that it's not that that it's actually a book about you know history and ecology and art and you know all these different things but that is a very um, specific rhetorical move that i'm making to try to be that kind of weird shape I
0: have to say, I almost didn't I almost didn't call you for an interview because I thought, oh, tips for turning your phone off, you know.
2: Yeah, <laughs> right. yet, exactly. I started to read
0: the book and said, boy, this is not that book. This yeah. has to do with your yourself, your person, not yourself. Yeah. I mean, it has to do with yeah. yourself, but, yeah. but each of us reading it, you know, your own self, and the technology around us and sort of the the monetary system that drove a lot of that technology and how we're involved in it and who we want to be without saying, here's a self-help book. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's not that. Yeah. It's not
2: that at all. It's really almost the opposite of a self-help book. I think that... Um you might read it and actually feel more confused at the end, but that conf- My kind of book, yeah. <laughs> but I think that that confusion is, is is just the beginning of kind of stepping away from not only the the cult of productivity, but the very narrow ways in which I think that's been critiqued.
0: I've been speaking with Jenny O'Dell, the author of How to Do Nothing: Resisting the Attention Economy. We'll talk more after break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at iTunes, NPR One, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the World Health Organization's goals for technology, and regular contributor Gary Davis talks about the tax scams chasing all of us. Stay with us. You are listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Jenny O'Dell, the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. With respect to old survivor and the useless tree metaphor, you were talking about it being a a form of resistance in place. And you say to resist in place is to make oneself into a shape that cannot so easily be appropriated
2: by a capitalist value system. I mean, I'm really trying to push against the idea of a personal brand and the way that that makes us think about ourselves, Um, have a section about... um, Uh, discover weekly on spotify um or just you know this these um algorithmic versions of the self like i have a set of preferences and then these platforms are catering to and maybe strengthening those preferences so that you become this kind of predictable pattern of i like this and i don't like this and that makes you a lot easier to advertise to Um, and my kind of ideal version of the self is completely the opposite of a personal brand which is Um, You know, I have some sort of identity, but it's very fluid and I'm very open to surprise. I I try to be open to surprise. I feel more alive when I am like that um, versus this kind of I know what I like and I know what I don't like. Or they know what you like. And so this is what they're showing you. And I,
0: I clicked on a few things and started seeing news items being shown to me that it was like, I'm not really interested in this. And then I realized, oh, no, no, I was writing a perspective and just clicked on a few of those. And it's like now they're they're making sure I see this instead of some other things I really think are important. So your vision of the world, this whole idea of the Internet being huge and out there, you're only being shown a few things that you seem to like and how you burst out of that through those algorithms. Well, good luck to you on that.
2: Right, right. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's still amazing to me how many important encounters I have with information that are not on a screen and are not algorithmically determined. So, you know, a lot of that is just conversations with other people, um, you know, especially people who are outside of my demographic um, and then, you know, uh, physical bookstores or libraries or um, just things that kind of come out of nowhere Um, those have often been the most rewarding encounters I've had. You describe three kinds of movement.
0: Dropping out, like we used to do in the 60s. (laughs) Lateral movement, outward to people and things. And movement down to place. What are we talking about there?
2: Yeah, so I think those... Those three movements are um, part of my effort to make this a little bit broader than the, you know, 10 ways to not look at your phone. Um, So obviously there is something valuable about the idea of just interrupting that. So that's kind of where I start. And that's what I have in common with a lot of other books um, about that. Um, but I feel like that's not really enough. And one of the reasons it's not enough is that you can't ask someone to stop paying attention to something and not give them something else to pay attention to. So it's so says something else, you know, for me personally, it was ecological, you know, bioregional awareness. Um, I think it could be a lot of things for different people, but, um, so that's, you have the kind of stopping and then the dropping out. I talk about, I talk about the communes in the book. Um, as really important examples for me of, of that kind of movement. But I also talk about Thomas Merton in that chapter, who was a monk or technically a hermit um, at a monastery um, in the middle of the 20th century, who um, wrote initially a book called Seven Story Mountain that was kind of denouncing the world because things were just really horrible at the time. and um, And that's kind of one of the things he's really well known for. But I was interested in the fact that after he wrote that, he kind of changed his mind um, and had this epiphany one day on a street corner when he had to go into town and realized he loved all of these strangers and felt responsibility to them and felt responsibility to the world. Um, and so a lot of his subsequent publications were um, engaging with political and social issues and, and also kind of taking the Catholic Church to task for not also doing that. So he kind of becomes this model for me. And interestingly, he inspired a lot of the people um, that we're moving to those communes. Um, But this model of kind of dropping out in a way, but not completely like forsaking the world that you have exited from. So I'm kind of trying to formulate this stance of, um, you know, I'm here... I'm not participating as asked, and I'm not certainly being productive in the ways that I'm being asked to be, but I, I also haven't you know, gone and moved to a cabin in the woods where I don't talk to anybody, um, because I don't think that anyone who buys this book um, is interested in doing that. I think probably a lot of the anxiety around... Um, that's being exploited by the attention economy comes from a recognition that we live in a really difficult time and, and would like to do something. So um, so that's the kind of the dropping out bit. And then the moving outward into place, um, that's really my suggestion for where you would reinvest your attention after you've divested it from the attention economy. So um, you know, I kind of in the beginning say, you know, okay, so you've put down your phone. What's in front of you What once you've done that? Like very literally, what's in front of you? Uh, what is the history of the place that you live in? Um, going all the way back to, you know, even indigenous history. Um, what, what are the things that live in this place? Uh, what is the shape, literally the shape of the place that you live in? Um, and that the, you know, for me, that's been super effective in holding my attention. I mean, I almost can't tear my attention away from that anymore. And it's been a real kind of, like love story between me and this place that I've lived my entire life. But it turns out I don't know very well.
0: Another thing I came away with was a stronger feeling, uh, an important feeling, I think of, of I'm still me. And then technology is out there, you know, and and whatever technology may be inside my body. Thank you for it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) You're, you're, You're a wonderful guest. Please stay. And, um, but, uh, Is to remember that. I think we've kind of merged with technology. I mean, if you've ever been with somebody who lost their cell phone, it is a
2: tough experience. Yeah. You know, that's fairly new for the whole
0: human race.
2: Yeah, it really is. Although I just have to tell you that um, I was in Seattle doing a book event. And this is a very typical Jenny experience to have. Um, someone recommended that I walk around the the campus, the university campus, um, because, you know, I had talked about wandering in my book and it's the campus has amazing trees and pathways. So I was wandering around. I took so many photos of trees and flowers that my phone ran out of batteries. So I'm now, and I've never been to Seattle. I was on the totally the different side of town from my hotel. And oddly enough, I think because of where I was, I just didn't have the sort of freak out that you would expect or I would even expect from myself just because it was so it had been raining the whole time. The sun had just come out. Just everything was so beautiful. And I felt like, okay, I'll deal with this later. I just need to look, especially now because I can't take photos. So I really just need to look at these trees and, you know, look at this amazing architecture and then I'll deal with it. You know, so I eventually found a bus stop and I looked at, you know, when's the last time you looked at a bus map on, at a bus stop? And I figured out, oh, OK, I remember that I had walked to a lake the day before and I found the lake and I figured out what East Lake and West Lake were. And I asked some strangers, how much is the bus? And then I just waited and I didn't even know like when the bus was going to come. And then I got on and it let off like right in front of my hotel. It was amazing. Like, I was so proud of myself.
0: The universe was speaking to you, too. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
2: but, but I just found it amazing how, um, how much more observant I had to be that whole time because I didn't have this, you know, my, my phone is completely dead at this point. So, um, you know, I'm like scanning the street to see if the bus is coming. I sat in the front so I could make sure I knew where we were going. I was very, like, hyper aware of all of the physical details of the space I was moving through. Welcome to the old days, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got an iPhone late, so um, I I still have, um, you know, in my old notebooks and stuff. Um, I remember when, uh, you know, here in San Francisco, when I was in grad school, I didn't have an iPhone yet. I would draw the, you know, I don't know if you would do this, but I would draw the little map that just shows only the things that you need to know to get to where you're going. Yeah. No. Um, that's what I would I would look it up at home, and then I would draw this little map, and then I would just carry that with me. Carry that with you, and you could look at it.
0: And yeah, that people have been doing that a long time. Yeah, make a ride at the big rock. Yep, yeah, exactly. Been doing it. They might <laughs> yeah. have to keep it in their head, you know. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's the way it is. Well, Jenny, there's so much about this book that we haven't gotten to, and uh, and it's certainly it's certainly not ten things to keep you from being distracted by your phone. I hope you'll come back and see us again. I hope so, too. (laughs) My guest today is Jenny O'Dell. Her book is How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. It's published by Melville House. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. The World Health Organization works with 194 member states, that would be every nation and territory and the like, globally, in what it calls a shared commitment to achieve better health for everyone, everywhere. Tech Nation Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells me that the World Health Organization has now set global goals for
3: technology. Exactly. And recently... April of 2019, the WHO released uh, its first guidelines on digital health interventions, meaning how do we take some of these exponential technologies whether our, our smartphones all the way to simple text messaging and impact health on a global scale, improving health equity and access. You know, there's lots and lots of opportunities to use this new world of digital connected and and mobile health, you know, about almost the entire planet now has Not necessarily a smartphone, but at least an SMS phone. So the bottom billion, the poorest on the planet, have their basic connectivity today. About 3 billion individuals are going to come online now with Internet access, whether it's rural America or rural Africa. And that means now we can have access to health information and transmit that. It may be as simple as has been shown to SMS, send a text message to a pregnant woman. Text for Baby was one of these early platforms that can improve their staying on top of their pregnancy regimen and lead to healthier children and even give them nudges and reminders when that baby's after the baby's born.
0: And in the opposite direction, if there's a problem or perceived problem, they can just get on the phone and talk,
3: get on the phone and talk, simple telemedicine does the phone all the way now to providing digital health tools to uh, a nurse or a midwife in a rural African village. Uh, all the way to an advanced uh, AI-powered ultrasound that have come to market through GE and companies uh, that have are now selling basically consumer-grade AI, FDA-approved ultrasound devices. So we have a whole spectrum. And what's exciting is information is power. Uh, we're in the age of, of chatbots where – Many folks don't have access to a physician or even a nurse, uh, but it might have questions. Is this fever dangerous? Uh, what are these, what does this rash mean? Now, there are chatbots, which can enable you to ask questions, get triage, maybe then connect you to a provider. In China, where there's been a dearth of actual uh, physicians in many parts of rural China, there's an app called Good Doctor that in only two years has well over 200 million users. And it's changed the way Chinese access, triage, get help, and even get prescription. So that's a bit of digital global health all the way to when you really need something emergently, like blood or a vaccine or a medical device. In the last few years, we've seen the rise of of drone technology to, to deliver products. In Rwanda, there's over 1,000 clinics being connected by a platform called Zipline, started here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So this is whole conundrum of, quote-unquote, digital-connected tools that can impact health and bring access to both you know, information, diagnostics, and therapy in new ways.
0: I have to say, the World Health Organization is very interesting because it doesn't just talk about medicines uh, or any of the things that you think are health-related. They go down into what's the economic capability of all the people in the world? Uh, What's the literacy level? What are all of these statistics about, you know, What is the health level? What's the access to medicine? So they're taking a a very complex view of what it's like in the world. So to think that it's a question of just stocking more things on our shelves because uh, we need some more essential medicines. These are more than just saying you have this disease or potential for this disease. We need to give you a medicine for
3: it. Right. It's about education. Actually, we know when you educate girls and women, that's the most important element to upping uh, health, uh, both improving health outcomes and preventing disease around the planet. Uh, We know that we can use, you know, digital health itself is not a panacea, but there's digital markers of everything from Ebola to swine flu that we can hopefully use to pick up problems early, maybe in a uh, a rural uh, town, people are trying to buy anti-nausea medicine or other elements. Those signals can be put together and using big data and machine learning help us map out uh, public health challenges that, in our jet jet-setting age, can spread around the planet. So health is becoming both local but also global in very impactful ways.
0: And the World Health Organization uses text messaging from all over the world to identify when there are Ebola outbreaks or any other kind of outbreak. And they come right in. You see them on the screen in their, what we would call their situation room. And these can be sent in by just about anybody. And until they're collected together, they don't mean anything.
3: Exactly. It's, it's connecting the dots, the sort of idea of crowdsourcing health and medicine. One point, though, about Uh, health and and healthcare is that it depends on who you are, where you are, your language and your culture. And many well-meaning folks have tried to sort of deliver healthcare in different parts of the world and have learned that it's not one size fits all. We need to have these regular interventions and especially our digital ones to match the culture, the language. For example, in uh, Southern Africa, when they first started to do uh, sort of mobile HIV testing, in many villages, it wasn't being adopted. But when they learned to meet with the village elders uh, and the, particularly the women in the village and have them put the kids together in their own language and then transmit them in, and use the SMS messaging in the right tone and form, and dramatically improved testing and prevented folks from getting HIV and transmitting it further. So there's a lot of lessons to learn about you know precision, personalized digital health uh, based on where you are and, and who you're who you're meeting with.
0: And the World Health Organization has new goals for us all.
3: Yep. Look them up. There's a whole set of new guidelines on digital health interventions. And for those of you who are developing new solutions and platforms, you can learn from those guidelines and, and help meet them in new, impactful ways. Thanks for coming in, Daniel. Thanks, Moira.
0: Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. The Exponential Medicine Conference 2019 is scheduled for early November at the Hotel Coronado in San Diego. More information is available at ExponentialMedicine.com. No matter what we talk about here on Technation, the IRS remains a reality. Everyone has to pay taxes. So it's easy to imagine that everyone is a potential target for a tax scam. Regular Technation contributor Gary Davis is the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee. Well, Gary, we're all finished our taxes or at least our extensions. If we haven't finished our taxes, what do we know now about all these tax scams?
4: I, I tell you what, the, the the bad guys never take a day off. I'm always in awe as we let the, the whole tax season dust settle a little bit and then kind of sift back through the, the bad stuff they would have done. And then these guys are very um, brazen. I mean, they, they, they know no bounds. It's funny before, we started our chat, we were talking about how the IRS explicitly says, we're not going to call you and we're not going to send you an email. But yet the amount of times we get these calls and these emails supposedly from the IRS, and it just scares people. Oh my goodness, it's the IRS. So I, I got to respond. And without fail, it's, it's typically somebody trying to get money that they shouldn't otherwise be getting.
0: So what do they say? What kind of things do they do when they call?
4: Oh, it's all over the place. The most common scam today is, they're saying, you've been found of something like pedophilia or, or something like that, and if you don't pay us – and it, this is coming from the IRS. Now, why the IRS would be calling about something like that, it, it, you don't know. But but if you don't pay us, we're going to you know, take you to criminal court, and you're going to be going to jail for a very long time. And they just they, – they, they, they put pray. enough
0: words in, they're like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Yeah, yeah. and who wants to mess with the IRS? Well, yeah,
4: and, and they prey on those vulnerabilities that, that people are afraid of. People are afraid of going to jail. They're afraid of, of being exposed to inappropriate content. They're afraid of the IRS. So they...
0: Now, a few years ago, I heard a lot about this. I don't know if it's corrected or I just haven't heard about it, but there were people going out making fraudulent tax returns yeah. in your name online now that most of america files their tax returns online
4: yeah they sure do and that happened to my daughter actually poor thing it, it, she would it was her sophomore year in college and she went to file her taxes um just to find out that she'd already had a claim or put her taxes submitted um got a refund check and she was like now now what do i do obviously somebody had gotten her social security number gotten her her address and obviously forwarded the payment to a PO box but it was hard i mean it is it is every bit of what you have to do if your identity stolen stolen you have to do if you ta- if you're, somebody submitted a fraudulent tax return so you have to contact the IRS and get it sorted out with them you have to file a police report you have to freeze your credit you have to do all these steps to make sure that that not only do you get your your taxes due or your your refund due back to you but also to make sure that nothing else happens because it, once that tax or that tax fraud person gets that refund check, they're like, oh, this is a known good account. So let me go open a credit card. Let me go do these other activities and, and further do damage to your credit and, and two, as a person.
0: So they get the check from the IRS, and you got to be trustworthy if you have a check from the IRS. And they take your your ID information, and, uh, and they know your birth date and your social security. And they walk, walk right down in and they into a bank, and they say, "I'd like to open a, a, a an account." And everything's yeah. just
4: fine. Yeah, it happened to me. Well, not quite that circumstance. It was you know, years and years ago. Um, our four hundred and one k administrator had sold the uh, key information for several executives. And I remember it like yesterday. It was a Saturday morning. I get a call. Is this Gary Davis? Yes. Um, Is this your date of birth? Yes. Do you live at this address? Yes. Did you take a credit card from our company? No. Okay, that's interesting. Apparently, this identity thief had taken out a $20,000 credit card as me online. The very first thought that came to me is like, why in the world would any bank – give a $20,000 credit card to somebody sight unseen. Hey, let's start with $2,000. And if he proves credit worthy, then maybe we'll eke it up a bit. But yeah, I, I was, I was just- Well,
0: don't forget when they ask you these things, they say, what's your annual income? And you say, $4 million, yeah. <laughs> like, well, $20,000. That's like a dime. Oh yeah, yeah. You
4: know? <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. And, and it's funny because there's just a couple of months there, is going back to, to taxes. There is a gentleman in Florida- who I I don't recall the circumstances, but he submitted his taxes saying he earned like thirty thousand dollars, but he paid something like seven million dollars in taxes. So the IRS stroke him a check for six point nine million dollars. And then of course you know he he gets the tax and he, the the tax return and he's trying to go cash it in and of course now the IRS is trying to catch it because they, they knew <laughs> yeah of course it's like where in the world would you think that somebody with that kind of income would pay that much in taxes it was just it was just a, a very funny circumstance I don't know if they ever did catch the guy
0: I keep thinking about people in PO boxes because the way the, uh, the a lot of the scams work. It's like, yeah, send me the check, but not to my residence. Send it to my PO box. Mm-hmm. They never ask you how do you guarantee that's your PO box. People with PO boxes all over the place.
4: Yeah, no, you can. And that, there's nothing illegal about that. I mean, you, you can get a PO box any place and and for any number of reasons. All oh, I'm, I'm moving. You know, I, I have the side business, so I need it to, to keep things separate. There's all these legitimate reasons why you'd want to use a PO box. And obviously, one of the growing reasons is for uh, fraudulent purposes. Because you, you know, you're sure surely not going to send that that refund check to your home address because that's going to give the the law enforcement a pathway to your front door.
0: Now, let's get the bottom line in terms of how little information they need to make this happen. They need your legal name,
4: mm-hmm.
0: and do they need your date of birth?
4: They need your date of birth, they need your social security number, and that's really it. it it's nice if you have a, a known good address, because that's yet another form of, of your I- identity, of your who you are. But really, the, the bare minimum to really do um, damage as a fraudster, social security number, date of birth, and your name. That's going to get you a long ways to doing something that you shouldn't be doing.
0: And finally, how about... The payment methods they're asking for—does any of is any of that a tip off?
4: Well, it should be. It depends on what you're you're talking about as far as the payoff. If if it's you you fall for the I got a call from the IRS or I got an email from the IRS and and you feel obliged to pay it. Typically, the way those are paid, they they say go to a local, you know, CVS or Walgreens, get these pre, prepaid cars, prepaid cards, and send that to us. That's the more popular way when you're dealing with that type of activities. Now, there are— or you just
0: have to read them. They say, and you'll read the numbers off the back.
4: Or that, yeah, you, know, you call us back and just read us the numbers, and they can use that as well. That's, that's, a, that's popular with gift cards in particular. iTunes is, is one mechanism. Um, you know, there have been a couple cases, not very many, where they take Bitcoin as a payment. And I suspect as virtual currency becomes more mainstream— that'll become more popular because, you know, that's a very anonymized form of payment. But they're certainly going to do all they can to make sure they can't track that payment to an individual because that's part of the the scam is you as the scammer don't want to be identified.
0: While we're sitting here in the United States,
4: where are the scammers? Oh, they're all over the place. They, they There are no bounds. And this is the thing, again, that amazes me, that cybercrime or this type of crime activity has become – Global in nature, you can sit behind the comfort of your home, regardless of where that home is, and do these things all day long. And it's just it just amazes me that you think about the the technique they're they're casting a wide net and hoping that a a small number of people will fall for their scheme. And and it you know it's very easy to do. You know, you can be sitting um, in, the, in the far reaches of Europe or Asia or places like that and do this all day long. And, and there's nothing to stop you from doing it. In fact. People that do it from those locations make it that much harder on law enforcement because once it's an international crime, then local law enforcement has to deal with the international crime organizations. And all these piece parts have to work together in order to bring those types of of criminals to justice. And it's just so hard to do nowadays.
0: And I know I said finally, but I didn't mean it.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Finally is not finally. This is really
0: finally. (laughs) Finally. a lot of people have been telling me about how they have a huge increase right now in telephone calls with either their own uh, area code and first three digits as mm-hmm. the apparent caller or an 800 number. And sometimes they're not even speaking English. Sometimes it's, it's totally some kind of fraudulent activity. What do you call that?
4: Oh, that, that's, that's yet another, call that a scam of sorts. There's all sorts of different things, but that's called um, a neighbor scam where basically they assume because you use the the area code and the prefix of something familiar that you're going to pick it up because it's all, it must be a neighbor of mine. Um, but it, this happened to me. I was in Europe two weeks ago and I got two calls from my own phone. So I'm sitting there at a restaurant and the next thing you know, you know, Gary Davis, my own picture and my own phone number comes up. Somebody has spoofed my own phone and called me as if I'm myself. And I thought about that. If I, I, I of course didn't answer. But if I thought if my mom got that call or my brother got that call, they're like, "Wow, how is this happening?" They may just answer just because of the the uncertainty around that call. But it, I, I think the, the ultimate end game. I think, for, and I hope we don't get here is if they call from somebody you would expect to take a call from. For example, if my kids call me, my girlfriend calls me, somebody that, that I expect to get a call from, I'm going to answer that. But if it's just uh, area code and prefix, no, nah, I'm not going to answer it.
0: And does that help if you don't answer it?
4: Um, well, it does now because now you use this 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 application, which actually has the funniest responses. One is this guy picks up like he's a Russian. Hello. <laughs> hello what you say, and it, it goes on for two or three minutes you can just imagine how frustrating it is to the scammer because they think i got a live one right somebody i'm talking to somebody and then but it's it,
0: just going on and and yeah on. it's just going on and
4: on <laughs> and on and it's, it's funny to listen to some of these different responses then i figure if that's my small way to, to kind of get back at these scammers that that's what
0: you're gonna do oh. that's
4: what i'm doing i'm doing that today
0: yeah. <laughs> hey gary always a pleasure thanks for coming in thanks for having me i enjoyed it TechNation regular contributor Gary Davis is the Chief Consumer Security Evangelist at McAfee. For TechNation, I'm Moira Gunn.